thank you very much for being here on a Sunday night. And uh, let me uh, um, also say this evening that uh, after the service this morning, I was talking to uh, Brother um, Larry Collins, and uh, uh, he paid me a very kind compliment. And uh, I told my wife, of all the things that somebody could call me, this is probably the top of my heap. Uh, he called me a man of the book. And Brother Collins, I don't know of any higher honor than to be a preacher who's known as a man of the book. And I want to thank you for that kind word. And um, that's an encouragement to any preacher that uh, uh, folk can be perceiving that um, when you go to hear it, you're going to hear what the book says and not what the preacher thinks or feels or what somebody else would feel good about hearing. And um, I told him, and uh, I was telling Brother Michael a while ago, about uh, we were discussing and preachers we'd heard and some of the men we've heard who sent resumes here and some sent CDs and some preached on their own uh, church websites. and We get to hear those. It was um, one thing about it that I told Brother Mike and I told Brother Collins, I'm really more like a bull in a china shop. You know, I just sort of get started and I start plowing and uh, I just honestly forget um, people. You know, it's like Jeremiah told him when the Lord said, don't look at their faces. I don't have to worry about not seeing your faces. I can't see your faces, so it doesn't matter. I just know there are folks in front of me and I know this is where I preach. And uh, I was interesting. We were leaving a place today. It was a swanky place. You know, the place we used to take a guest, uh, Wendy's. That's where it was. We was at this swanky place up here and we were going in today for lunch. And there was a, uh, I think you'd call him Oriental. That's probably a, the gentleman came out with his mother. I think he was Oriental. He was talking to his mother, and his mother was, uh, you know, like this. Very short lady, Oriental look, and evidently she was blind. And he was counting steps. And he said, in about five steps, mother, you're going to be stepping down. And he, she went, one, two, three, four. Five, he said, next step, mother, you're going to be going down six, seven inches. And he told her. And she did. She took the step down. She got down and she could feel. And then they went on. Uh, I always have seen the work of the ministry as a, as a blind man preached to hearing, seeing people. Because you never want a man in a pulpit who is either intimidated or discouraged by what he sees. I preach here at the church over the over 30 years and there have been people while I was up preaching they were going now I appreciate when people are like this or they even smile or occasionally blink I know they're alive they're well and they're listening but sometimes when a guy goes you know you're in trouble and so what I did a long time ago is I started going through this door into those rooms and I locked those doors so nobody can come not really but you know, that's what you feel like doing. You run now. You've got to get away from this group. They're going to get you. But when the Lord told Jeremiah, just don't look at their faces. Because he said, you speak for me. And what faithfully, uh, you know, what work I want to do is I want to be faithful to the Lord. I don't necessarily want to please you. I want to please him. If that pleases you, that's good. I'm glad. I, I don't want to make anybody mad. But if making you mad pleases him, you're going to get mad at me. Tonight you're not. I don't think there's anything in the message. I've looked at it carefully, and I don't think there's anything here to make you mad. But I hope it'll make you glad. I hope it'll encourage your heart because it's about uh, worship. And I think that um, we'll start where we 
start like start last time where it is where we began and uh, make the point and then move further and so forth. One of the things is that um, we've already covered who the Lord is and uh, worshiping of the Lord and so forth, and I've said it all along. I, I have a concern of people uh, really coming to a service to worship the Lord. And uh, it's easy to come to a service but be distracted and a lot of other things enter in, and the next thing you know, your focus is not on the Lord. Your focus is on something else. And that's why in a, in a service you don't want a lot of um, distractions. You know, you may not think anything about it, but uh, people talking to one another in a service is a distraction to worship. It can be in front of you or it can be beside of you, but if you hear what's a low-tone whisper, you may turn and you've lost your concentration. You're not focused on what's being said. It can be that uh, it can also be some distraction of somebody getting up and going out of the service. And sometimes that's a necessity. And if it is and you need to leave the service, I understand that. Just do it as discreetly as you can. And, and as I tell the people, if you have to go out twice, the best thing to do is to remain in the foyer and look through the glass. We have a speaker in the foyer. You can hear everything we say. And you can just stay out there without having to go in and out and in and out. That becomes a distraction. The third thing is is that um, in context with a regular scheduled service like we have and, and so forth, that any time you hear somebody uh, in the service who, you know, may um, affirm what's being said, amen and so forth, uh, that shouldn't distract you. It should just give you impetus and encouragement that we're hearing the truth and we, we're moving forward with it. Because otherwise what happens is that there will be people who, uh, who begin to think in themselves, uh, do, did I, should I say things like that? I grew up in a Presbyterian church and we heard very seldom we heard an amen. Well, when we got into Baptist churches, we heard people would affirm the truth. They'd say amen, so be it. And that encourages preachers and, also preachers, and it also encourages the people in the pew to know that there are folks here who agree with what, what's being preached and what's being said. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We, we just don't get carried away with it, as in some churches where you know, people get excited about it and raise their hand and they distract people around them and so forth. It's, uh, it's about the same kind of thing that happens when you've, if you've ever gone to a game. I haven't, but I've seen them on television, uh, where that, uh, in a football game, people will carry, uh, uh, evidently they carry a piece of the fence at their house, and then they hold one slat over here, and they have about a quarter of the fence over here, and it said, defense. Have you seen those signs? Yeah, it's like somebody cut the front of their fence out of their house, and they carry it down there, and they hold it up like this, and it defense, defense, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think much about that. I think about the guy behind them who can't see the game and paid $40 to do it. So the thing about you don't want anything to be a distraction to get the message down, see. And when you have something that distracts from the message, then we got a problem. So the issue is this in the services that you feel like saying amen, then let me encourage you to do it. And uh, if it would uh, encourage people around you to listen more attentively, have at it. And this evening when we come to the issue of worship, uh, it's one of those things that the last time I was with you I talked about three things, not only who, who the Lord is, we've covered that in weeks before that, but we got down the last time of what God has done. 
And what God has done is, is put it to a level of making him worthy of worship, even if we didn't know who he was. Now, we know the two go together, but if, if you didn't know the first, the second would be important, what God has done. And the first thing we said was, uh, God has created. Um, he's created everything that is, and that's an important basis for worship. And it's also important because in, in understanding that uh, there's nothing uh, created that God didn't create. There's no creations done apart from God's creative work. So we said, and this is important to note, that you and I were, were not there. I should have shared with you last week, and I didn't, but in the book of Job, in, the, in the Job's last chapters, about 38 or 39, somewhere around in there, uh, Job goes through the questions, and they're very appropriate. He says, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? And he's, this is the Lord asking Job that. And his question is a fair one. It's, it's trying to get him to understand something. No, we were not there when he laid the foundation of the world. And then secondly, he's not only creator, but a Colossians chapter 1 would tell us that he's sustainer. In fact, in one of the songs that we sang in the morning service, it had the reference about his sustaining work. I don't know whether you caught it or not, but it's in a song you sang in this morning service. He sustains it. The world, as it were, that he's created could come unglued if it were not that he sustains it. He, makes it, he keeps it up to what it was intended in its purpose. The question could be asked, uh, do you and I have anything to do with sustaining him? Not a thing. Uh, this world, if it were left to us, would fall apart if he did not keep it and sustain it. The third thing is it moves from the creation and the keeping of sustaining of it to the issue of Savior. Uh, God is our Savior in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's creator, sustainer, and Savior. It's important that we tie those three together, and there is a fourth, and it is he is judge. He is judge. He's called the judge of the universe, and there is a judgment that he will carry out. The Bible is very clear on that. What's important, and we called your attention to it last time, a lot of people who believe in a work salvation miss the point that in none of the other works that God does and why he is to be worshipped, each of these have some relevance in the scriptures about him worship and give an allusion to creation, sustaining, salvation, and to judgment. And the point made is these are basis of honest heart worship of the Lord. But the issue is that some people who believe in salvation where you get baptized, you join a church, or you give money, or you do the best you can and so forth, they make it a point that they've somehow helped God save them. Well, here's the honest question. Did, when it comes to creation, and the Lord asked Job the question first, were you there when I did that? The obvious answer is no. There was no human being there. So God didn't get any help. Or are you present in sustaining? Do you get caught? Do you climb up in the sky and make sure that the bulbs in the moon are shining or the right? Do you, or have you helped change the light bulb? No, you haven't. Well, did, did you, do you do anything with salvation? Not a single thing you do for salvation. So the fact is, if you didn't help in creation, you didn't help in sustaining it, you don't help in salvation, and you will not get to do any of the judging of the lost. Now, Christians get to judge in the New Testament. The book of Corinthians tells us that uh, we uh, get to judge angels. I, I don't know how you judge an angel. I don't have a book in my library. Of all the books I have, I don't have a single book that tells me what I'm going to have to do when I judge angels. I don't know the job, but I do know this. If he's assigned me the duty... He'll give me the wisdom to get it done. 
So that will be the only judging I'll do or you'll do or any other Christian will do. But it's important to note in none of these things of which the Bible speaks of him as what he has done that you and I contributed anything. And that's an important thing because uh, when you talk to the people who uh, are really believing and trusting the Lord that what they've done and contribute to salvation is going to get them to heaven, uh, you're looking at somebody who's got a false religion. Because if it's, it's just as possible to have helped at creation and just as possible to help in sustaining the universe as it would be if you were going to be saying you did something on your part to save yourself. You did not, and you could not any more than you could do the other. So those are the things of what he has done. But then I want to move this evening to um, uh, what I consider why you worship. And uh, this is pretty much taking all those other things and laying them on the ground. And let me take you, if I may please, to Romans chapter number 1. In Romans chapter number 1, you have a, a setting and a circumstance here. Uh, where we have the, uh, the description, as it were, that the world was guilty before God. And it starts in chapter number 1 in verse 17. It says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, Because that they may be known uh, that which may be known of God, is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The first thing in verse 20 is to tell you that God in his great wisdom, his great mercy, his great uh, uh, desire to help you and I come to know him and to know him better is that he is placed into and worked within the process of the creation of this world that uh, we will come to know him and in the first place come to know him as the God who created it. Uh, that's why we've always said around the New Life Baptist Church that uh, creation evangelism is a major thing. Because you have to start with God. And the starting of the Bible with God is in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. So the very first works that God carried out was that he created. And if you don't believe in, in God the creator, then there's no starting place for you. And that's what it is when you go to witness to someone. You ought to start where the Bible starts and tell them, you know, God created the heavens and the earth and all that in it is. And the word earth is the Lord's and all the fullness therein. It's his. All, every bit of it is. And the issue on the, the table is that that's how it started and that's how he wanted to stay. But look at verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. The word for glorified there carries with it also the ideal of uplifting, exalting, of honoring. It'd be all the same words we would do using the word worship. They did not worship God, verse number 21, because that when they knew God, they did not glorify, they did not worship him as God, and neither were they thankful, but became vain or empty in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts, our heart, was darkened. So here they gave up on the basis of who they became. They gave up their glorifying God, which is evidence of their worship, and in that they were not thankful like they evidently were before. 
In this context, the way it comes, neither were they thankful to imply that there was some time when they were, and now they're not there. They're no longer thankful. They did what we said had happened in this uh, morning in the story of Sodom, uh, where Ezekiel chapter 16 talks about them being people of pride, people who of fullness of bread, and also abundance of idleness. Those were all preceded sins before you ever get to homosexuality. And that's exactly what the text in Ezekiel 16 is talking about. Chapter 16, verse 48, 49, and 50. That's what it's saying. There are certain sins that precede another bigger sin. And in this case, the sin that is taking place is that these people quit worshiping correctly. Now, we don't know how about all the ways they were worshiping. And at that time, obviously, there were differences than we would have today. But the fact is, they quit it. They stopped it. They abandoned it. And in verse number 21, stating that, it says and adds to that, that that neither were they thankful. They did not worship, and they were not thankful. Which brings to this simple point always about worship. In the context of all worship, there is gratitude and thanksgiving. Always. How many times you heard somebody pray and they'll say, Lord, we want to thank you for who you are. And that's a good way to start. We want to thank you that you know everything. There's nothing to be known that you do not know. And it's everything that is knowable you know. And a lot of things that we don't know you know. For instance, isn't it interesting? It's amazing to me that we can land a guy on the moon but you'll never find a textbook that'll tell you how that they understand how a bee flies, and especially a bumblebee. I have uh, seen in print curriculum of our biology classes, and in the curriculum it says, the mystery still remains concerning why the bumblebee can even get off the ground. Oh, we can put a guy on the moon and we can bring moon dust back, but we can't tell you how a bumblebee flies. Isn't that great? I think it is, because what it does, it says to man, smart as you are, you're not as smart as he is. As smart as you are, you're not as smart as he is. And he knows everything. He understands it all. He put it together, and it just confuses the fire out of people who think they're smart, you know. I've always liked to do that. You know, I like to catch somebody and uh, find, you know, somebody that really thinks they know something and uh, find one of the books in my library and dig up some fact that's hidden way, you know, and then go ask them about it and let them make fool of themselves bragging about how much they know. God knows even the unknowable. What you and I say, well, I just think, I think that's past finding out. It is. But God knows. God knows. And in this particular case, these people, in all of their pursuits, somehow left God in the dust. Now look at verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And that's often the case. Uh, professing themselves to be wise. Yeah, we would carry that idea with, it, with their knowledge. You know, professing themselves to accumulated knowledge and the usage of that knowledge is wisdom. And so he says, professing themselves to be wise, which based on the ideal of some knowledge, they actually became fools. In verse 23, and what they actually did was they changed, the verse says so, they changed the glory of the incorruptible, uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, 
God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own eyes or heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves and verse 25 who changed the truth of God into a lie and watch what they did. They worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This whole thing has to do with the factor that these people gave up on worship. And uh, it may have been a simple basis for them. They may have not given a lot of attention to it. But one thing is for sure. Man is so constructed that he'll worship something. I mean, he may not realize it in the tones and the context of what the Scriptures teach about worship. And he may not understand all the ins and outs about worship. But he has something to which he gives thanks and glory, and he exalts with his commendations. He appreciates, he expresses that appreciation for it. That's the expression of worship. The difference is that in the, the Bible, when we talk about worship, it has some specific things to do. Uh, one thing is it's changed over the years, and it's not the same now as it once was. But nonetheless, it uh, is still called worship. Let me take you from where you are in Romans chapter 1 and uh, go over, if you would, and go backward in your Bible to the Gospel of John and look at chapter number 4. John chapter 4. And uh, what you uh, should know, we when we went through our study of the book of John, and uh, we were um, when we stopped our exposition of John's gospel, we stopped at chapter ten. We just started into it, and if you recall that far back, and uh, by the way, this will be the last message on worship because next Sunday evening is my last message on the Sunday evening, and that message will be on remembering and not forgetting. And so I hope that you'll be ready to change gears. But uh, when we stop preaching through the Gospel of John, we preach chapter 10, verse 1 or 2, and then we went to uh, Psalm 23 because we started talking about sheep and what the Bible says about them and went to the Old Testament, and we've never gone back. So that's where we ended. That's where in my library I have all these, uh, I have 40 volumes of my own preaching through the Bible. And uh, I have all the notes that I preached through every one of those, and uh, have them in a, in a notebook. And when I need to remind myself of some text I preached on, because I did all the research at that time, and I don't want to go back and do it all again, I just flip through the sermons to find where I'm at in what text, and go back and read it, and so forth. Well, I reviewed this one the other day, and in this ver- this particular section, there are a couple of things that I would call your attention to. And uh, as I said, when we were preaching through John. Uh, John, uh, uh, the beloved disciple and beloved apostle, uh, he did things in, I think, a a very orderly fashion. For instance, in chapter 3, because uh, chapter 3, of course, comes and precedes chapter 4, in chapter 4 you have the Samaritan woman at the well. In chapter 3, you have Nicodemus, uh, the ruler of the Jews, come to Jesus by night. It was fascinating to me then when I was studying and when we preached uh, through chapter 3 and chapter 4, and it still fascinates me that uh, in chapter 3, it is shown, the Lord is showing, that he can save the the top-of-the-line kind of guy. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was probably uh, uh, one of the kind of people the community looked up to and he's a member of the Sanhedrin he was important he he carried uh, clout and and people would have uh, been impressed by him and uh, 
he didn't want that to lose or did be lost. And so when he heard about the Lord Jesus Christ, he was somewhat impressed, but not to take away from his own reputation. He comes to see Jesus by night. Nobody will see him. He can slip in and slip out, and nobody will ever know he was there. It apparently concerned about his position. Whatever the case is, when you get through with chapter 3, and it's got all the, the, the aspects of sharing the gospel um, about being born again. It's the classic chapter on the new birth, obviously. It's interesting that chapter 3 deals with the top of the line, somebody who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or at least we believe he comes to faith with what he was told. When you come to chapter 4, you got the lowest of the people in the community, the woman at the well. She's been married numerous times, and she's in, an, in a situation where even uh, among the people there, um, she goes into the city and she tells the men of the city what she's found. So she's obviously a unique and different kind of woman and she would be looked upon in a community as being low and Nicodemus would be looked as it being high and the Lord Jesus Christ shares the gospel with both of them appropriately. It just says to us, you know, we can do the same thing. If it, the, the top of the line people, people who are considered to be very smart and very educated and people who are very, uh, very much in a class by themselves because of their training and the position they hold, that's okay. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't have a degree in the Sanhedrin. He never had a seat at the table of the Sanhedrin when they made judgment about Israel. But he ruled the world and will rule it still. So the fact is it didn't intimidate him and it shouldn't intimidate you and I. And uh, I can remember in a, sitting in a seminar right here in Indianapolis one year. I'd come over from where we were pastoring in Ohio. I came to the meeting, and I remember a man getting in a lecture room to talk in what they call cell meetings, and they were talking to small groups of pastors, and I was in the group, and I was amazed that he said to us, Now look, there's a certain group of people in this city you just should not, should not uh, waste your time in sharing the gospel with. What was impressive to me is the group he picked. He said... The poor of this city will never listen to the gospel. Don't go to them. Go to the rich side of town. Go to the north side of Indianapolis and, and make your effort to reach people there with the gospel. They'll listen. That sort of runs counter to everything in the scripture. You know, because uh, the Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. And there are people lost on the north side of the tracks, and there are people lost on the south side of the tracks, and everybody needs to hear the gospel. In this particular case, when you come to chapter 4, call your attention down to, uh, oh, skip down to about verse number, uh, let's look at verse number 13. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. This is chapter 4 of John, verse number 14. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus said unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. And, uh, and interesting, this would be if you were... Looking at this about sharing the gospel, this is where the Lord Jesus Christ brings up the subject of sin. He says, go call your husband. Now watch, verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. As if to catch him in a, in a false presentation. I have no husband. I almost think Jesus was smiling. Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said, 
I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that sayest thou truly. He says, I know. I know more about you than you know about yourself. And I know that you've had five husbands. Now, this is a, 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 a magnificent way to bring up the sin question. She would think that would be hidden from the world. Nobody would ever find this out. By the way, there's hardly anything that has ever happened that cannot be found out. In the fast-paced media system we have, hey, you can find out anything on anybody. But it was not a media system that knew this. It was the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who is God in the flesh. And he stands there before this woman and he said, You've well spoken. You have five husbands and you have a live-in. And I'm quite sure at this point she was taken off of her she was taken off of her standing. She was about knocked over by what he was saying to her. And in verse number 19, the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Well, she was right on that. Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. But uh, verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. It's not a place now to go into it. We touched on it when we preached through John chapter 4. But the fact is the Samaritans worshipped there, and theirs was a man-made worship. That is, they took a little bit of ministry of worship from the Jews. They took a little bit from what's been referred to as mountain people, and they put them together, and they came up with what they thought was an acceptable worship system or model. And the truth of the matter is, uh, that's another issue about what real worship is. It is not man-made and the Samaritans had a man-made worship system, a man-made worship model. And taken some from here and some from there, they put them together, and they thought God would accept anything they offered as long as they called it worship. Wrong. That's not true. And that's what goes wrong in some of our churches. We think that we can do things, and, and even in music or in preaching, uh, we can just say any old thing, and God's going to accept it and be happy that we at least came to the service and bowed before him. No, he's not. You know, God has a very high standard for what it takes to be and really worship him. Because he's not just interested in a group of people getting together, singing a few hymns, and let a preacher get up and make a fool of himself preaching and call that worship. It has to be more than that. What it has to be, and one of the standards for it is, that it has to be truth first. In fact, this passage, look further. In verse 21, Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. He's talking about a time when there will be no division among people about who they worship. And uh, taking down the wall or petition between Christians and or the Jews and Christians where they would worship the Lord freely, openly, because they singularly accept Jesus Christ, either the Messiah or the Savior. Verse 22, you worship or ye worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. The Jews' worship system was the primary model that was acceptable to God. Very simple. And let me get you in on it. Why would it have been acceptable to God? 
Because God gave it to Moses to give to the people. God says, here's how you're going to worship. worship. This is how worship's going to work with you. And this is Jesus Christ speaking who says in, in this verse of Scripture to the woman, you, know, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jew. He's meaning that my father gave Moses the outline of what worship is. And because he gave it, if you follow that, you can have sincere worship. It can be the real deal. Now, it's changed from the Old Testament to who it is and what it is these days uh, because when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, he was the final sacrifice that had to be made for all of the atonement and worship of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ has paid the price, and you and I don't have to bring goats and lambs and, and oxen to church and kill them in the parking lot and offer them up in a, in a burnt offering. We don't have to do that anymore. What do we do? We just simply come to the services and accept the offering and sacrifice that he made as being the basis for our worship. Because you have to trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ to even enter into worship with the Lord Jesus. You can't be a pagan and show up in a, in a Bible-believing church in, in a service and worship the Lord just because you're in a building where they worship. That's not going to be worship. First problem is you're not on worshiping ground, you know. And you have to get on worshiping ground. You have to be in a right relationship with God, and you can't be a right relationship with God if you have not come through the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior, as the sacrifice for our sin, and He then is the basis for real and true worship. Look further. Verse 23, the hour, but the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Note the last part of the verse, 23, chapter 4, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. The first thing of why you worship is because God wants you to worship. He wants you to worship. He wants you to understand it, and he wants you to, to uh, bow your heart, bow your head, and he also puts stipulations on it that he wants uh, this worship, he wants the worshipers to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. One thing about the spirit in this context really would be the same word as what we would use. He wants you to worship with heart. With heart. You know, I've said it to the choir, you know, several times when practicing whatever, sing with passion. When you worship, worship with passion. Uh, what we've done is we've allowed our, our Pentecostal friends uh, to do what they do, and, and the world thinks that's real worship, you know, making all sorts of movements and activity and jumping around. And I've told you about uh, my uncle who was a Pentecostal preacher and, and uh, had a guest in, and, and the people weren't acting too well worship-wise from their standard. And I remember my uncle coming to the pulpit and saying, let's get it. And, man, they got it. I mean, they started moving, dancing, jumping around, hollering, screaming, and lifting their hands. And uh, my father just told me, he said, this isn't, this isn't the real deal. This is, this is put on. This is uh, called up. And that's not the way worship is. Worship is in spirit and in truth. First off, the truth sets the stage for you to really worship. If you have to push yourself to do something, uh, you can be assured you're not into worship. Worship ought to be the overflow. Let me say, let me tell you this. I told my wife this, and uh, this is something that is absolutely true 
for me personally. I'm not saying it's true for you. Uh, if you uh, if you get your if you use a songbook sometime when you privately worship the Lord, because worship uh, ought to be done uh, privately. It ought to be done with uh, in your family. It ought to be done at church. Uh, it ought to be done anywhere. Everybody is in agreement of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and a desire to honor and glorify Him. I can get this song, and probably no song in this songbook, and I have a lot in this songbook I like. I have a lot of songs that uh, I love to read and, and even hum and sing when I have my devotional time. I enjoy that, and I believe it's acceptable worship because uh, it's just prompted from my heart to sing unto the Lord. Here's the thing. This is the song of How Great Thou Art. Now, I don't know of a single song that is a balance of absolute worship more than this song. I said to my wife, I don't know the spiritual standing of Stuart Hine, but I'll tell you what, he had to have something going for him about this because this song represents and sets forth everything that uh, real worship ought to be. Listen, we know the words, but just listen to them in this way. He says, O Lord my God, When I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. Creation. Right off the bat. Creation. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul. My Savior, God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. When through the woods and forest glades I wander, and I hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. Verse number three. And when I think, when I think that God, his Son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, My burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great thou art. That's worshipful. That's worshipful. It ought to make you feel like you just need to get out on your your face before the Lord. If you've been out the last few days in the nice sunny weather we've had with a gentle breeze and the sky moving slightly, and man, it's just about as good as weather gets. My wife and I have marveled at the Lord and His creation and all of that. And uh, even to see it is just exactly what Romans chapter 1 started out when we read tonight. There is something in creation that just calls us to worship God. And when you get out and you enjoy some beautiful sight and, and you hear and hear the birds singing or you hear a, 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 an eagle flying and calling as they often squawk so high and it's almost beyond our sight to see them, and you just say to yourself, 
God was magnificent in what he's done. He just feels sort of like getting on your knees and bowing and praying and thanking him for what he's done and giving you and I the senses, the senses to be able to appreciate it and to love it. I just simply say to you there's some songs, and that's one for me, that encourages and enhances my worship of the Lord even in my private time. The other in this verse, look if you would in in the verse number 23 we just read where he speaks about worshipers worshiping the Father and Spirit and truth. And in verse 24, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And in saying that, that's an important matter on several fronts. That uh, this is the place where we uh, talk about and we have talked about where that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are a child of God. It is the same kind of concept that our spirit is in touch with God when you worship. That's what John 4 is really emphasizing. It's not just a matter of you coming into a room and saying some things. It's as if your spirit is the spirit of God that indwells you, is communing with your spirit to encourage you to embrace God for the fullness of who he is. And to be humble about it and to bow before him in humble adoration, as, as Stuart Hine said in his, his particular one. Also, notice further, we have to cut off here quickly. Notice in verse 21 or 25, The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And he actually, the word he is in italics, which means it's not in the Greek language. It's been added for understanding. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am. He's the great I am of the Old Testament. Verse 27, And upon this came the disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man saith, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pots, went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come, see a man, which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out in the city and came unto him, and in the meanwhile his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he saith unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore saith, said the disciples, one to another, hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying, True, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereupon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And then it says in verse 39, Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all that ever I did. So the Samaritans were come unto him. They besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. 
and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. All of that is to include the fact and the factor that um, the issue of worship is where this conversation all started. And uh, that's important because uh, what it sets up is for this woman to understand true worship, which I believe she was beginning to understand some of it as the Lord spoke about it here. And I think that's what happens with a lot of us. Uh, let me close with this. First off, understand something that the Father seeketh such to worship him. The text in John 4 says so. But please understand, please understand, he doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need it. It's interesting that if you understand worship, you understand this point and principle within it. You can give him nothing, absolutely nothing, that he did not provide first provide you with. There is nothing you can offer him. So the question always comes up when we make the statement, what did he give you about worship that, that you can give back to him? Because you have no worship to give unless he has given you that what it takes to worship. Let me tell you what it is. It's when you come to a point in your understanding of who he is and what he's done and how it incorporates you into his plan that you see yourself for who you really are and understand the great grace wherein he loved you and understand all that he's done for you and it just cries out to you in, internally. It just cries out to you, I need to get out and worship the Lord. I need to do that. That's what's right to do. That's his spirit conveying to your spirit where you fit into this great big picture. So the truth of the matter is, what he's really doing when he encourages us to worship is something he's given to us makes us better and makes us fit into the whole scheme and plan of his great redemption program. And we come to want to do it. We don't have to be pushed to do it. It's like anything else. You know, we tell, as, as children obey, they obey because we tell them to obey. Children, obey your parents for this is right. And that's what they should do. But children ought to grow to a point where they obey their parents because they want to. It's the same thing with worship. It may be at the front end, people encourage you to worship and sort of pushed you toward that. But as you mature in the faith and his spirit confirms with your spirit that you're a child of God and all that that incorporates, what he's actually done is the worship that he asks you for is really to help you, not him. You can't, you can't add to who he is at all. Not one iota. Whether you worship him or not is going to not diminish him one single ounce. He's going to be almighty God, period. But what he wants to do and what he asks you for, he wants to help you be better. And let me tell you something. The more you walk with him and the more you worship him, the more excited you will be about him. And you'll have no problem, watch carefully, doing exactly what this woman did. Go into the city and tell these people, I met somebody that's changed my life. You know who does that? You know who does the witnessing? It's the person who does the worshiping. It's not a matter of go witness and then you'll worship. It's a matter of you go worship and then you'll go witness. And that's the story of John chapter 4. And what we want to do is we want to mix it up and say, well, you know, worship's nice and so forth. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's essential. It's absolute. It's non-compromising. 
And every Christian has got to get to a point where they worship the Lord because there's something inside of them. When we start singing the great hymns of the faith, when, when Brother Mike leads on the Sunday morning service and we start to sing, there ought to be something swells up inside of us that uh, we feel like we're going to burst if we can't sing. You know what? And you say, well, you, you haven't heard me sing. Believe me, I don't care how you sing. That's not the point. The point is, is to express worship in whatever venue we've been given, and singing is one of them. I don't sing well, and I know that. And, and the fact of the matter is, it's, uh, uh, people tell me who work in the nursery, that pastor needs help. A lot of help. Well, that's not the point. I don't really care what they think about my singing, because I'm not singing to them really, and, and I do appreciate their kind critiquing. But the point is this. It's an expression, you know. I want to get up and I want to sing unto the Lord. I want to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I want to, I want to do something. When I'm leading the choir, I was leading the choir tonight, and I was thinking of this very thing. There's a, a choir number that the choir's working on for down the road. He's Emmanuel. I love the song in the first place. And then as we were singing it, I just couldn't help myself. I was waving my arms like I thought I was going to fly. Not because I'm a great song director. I am not. Uh, let you in on a cigarette. I can't read a lick of music. Not the first note. And I don't think I ever will. Because I never get this thing about the white cows give black milk or black cows give white milk. I don't know all that stuff. But I know this. I know the Lord saved me, changed my life, and blessed me immensely more than I deserve. And there's something inside of me that wants to get excited and get other people excited about worshiping this great God we serve. And I say to you that when it comes out on its own, it's the joy that a parent sees when he realizes his children are growing up and they want to obey because they love Him. That's what the Lord wants from us. He wants us to obey Him because we love Him. And He wants us to worship Him because we love Him. And the more you worship Him, the more you're going to want to worship Him because the more you're going to learn about Him. And I say to you then, it would be the thing if you want to go tell somebody else, just like the woman at the well did. And she goes into town and tells these people about what person she's met, and some of them come to follow or see the Lord Jesus Christ, and they believe on Him. You know, I believe with all of my heart we need to be a good walking advertisement for the Lord Jesus Christ and the great work that He's done to save us and change us. And uh, I say to you that one thing that makes it right is real Worship. Real worship. Uh, it's not something that you can put on and not something you can take off. It's, it doesn't come that way. It's something that becomes a reality within your heart, and it becomes something that uh, uh, you just feel like you're going to burst. I've said it before, and I believe there's truth in it, that um, when you hear somebody sing, and uh, as uh, people, as Brother Mike leads us in the worship service on Sunday morning, and Brother Barry did before on Wednesday night, and now Andrew does, there's, there should be something about our singing and hearing the songs of faith and the truth within them that uh, would, would just want us want to sing out louder and stronger and um, make expression of passion about it and not just be blasé. You know, it, it always bothered me when we can sing a song about blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And can sing it with a hardly raising a voice. 
There's just something in it that says that's not the way it's sung. Or uh, a mighty fortress is our God. How do you sing that with a just, you know, loco, you know, generic kind of a... You just can't do it. Or it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way. The fact of the matter is all of these songs are intended to bring out of us that connection of our spirit with his spirit that we lift him up in praise and worship and we glorify him and we're thankful for what he's doing in our life. And I'm telling you, when that gets connected, you've had a worship service. I want you to pray that the New Life Baptist Church from this day forward will have real worship services where we come with a passion to sing of the Lord and to lift our voices in praise for him and want to go tell somebody about him after we worship. That's when you know you've done it. We'll not give an invitation. I will ask you to stand and let's pray. And men, don't forget the meeting with the deacons downstairs, if you would. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the great person you are and the great God that you have become over the years to us individually. Always you were the same, but not to us. We've grown to see you in a greater, bigger light and more magnificent and more awe-inspiring. And Father, I pray that you'll enlarge our vision of you through your word. And I pray that our worship would be based on truth and spirit or heart. And I pray that when we come to sing in the services, boy, we'd sing with gusto and passion and conviction. And Father, that we would just lift up your name and glorify you in an appropriate manner of which people around us would see the sincerity of our faith. And if, if indeed while we sing the songs of faith, if it, our hearts get tender and our eyes weep, then let us rejoice that our spirits are connected and in sincerity is doing what we're doing. Help us never to do anything for show because obviously that circumvents all the worship and the direction it's supposed to be giving to you. So I pray tonight, help us to review our own personal worship. Uh, for some of us, worshiping privately is not something we're accustomed to doing, but help us to start. Help us to get alone with you in a songbook and see some of the great songs of faith, and even if we don't sing them, to read the words with them that are in accordance to what the Scriptures teach. And as we read the Word and read songs, I uh, pray, Father, meet us in those moments as we sing to you and glorify you and lift up your name. I pray that we will be able to say that we've spent time with the Lord and it be real, and not just some uh, word spoken, but it would be a reality that would be obvious that our countenance has changed, our spirit has changed, our hearts encouraged, and, and we are light on our feet. We, we just sing glory to the Lord, and we do it with passion. So thank you for opportunities to worship that are given to us here at the church, and for all the people who try to encourage us in it. Help us, I pray, Father, to seek your face and glorify your name, and may we, like the woman that was at the well of Samaria, after we worship, help us to be quick to tell others about this great God that we worship and help us to do what we can to introduce them to him. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. Help us to be faithful stewards of that which you've entrusted to us, which is the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.